In this video, we break down the three ways that Ali Abdal is going to make $15 million next year. And the first way is with painkillers. But before we get into that, if you didn't already know, Ali Abdal is a YouTuber who began creating content while being a med student at Cambridge University. Think study hacks and productivity tips. Once he graduated though, he realized that being a doctor wasn't for him. He transitioned to being a part-time productivity YouTuber and a full-time business builder. Last year in 2021, he earned $4,790,000, which is just an incredible amount. $4.8 million. Let's say we value that as a company. Let's say that if they're adding from 2 to 10x, like I guess the Ali Abdal empire would be worth anywhere from like 10 to $15 million, which is just insane to think about. To put that in perspective, the year before, he earned $1.5 million. So he basically 3x'd his revenue in the space of 12 months. The way that his revenue breaks down is $523,000 from YouTube sponsorships, $716,000 from Skillshare. The huge bulk of his revenue was actually $2.5 million from his course called Part-Time YouTuber Academy. I think what he's doing is amazing. This is a dude with his camera talking about how to make ideas happen. Let's talk about what Part-Time YouTuber Academy does well. Part-Time YouTuber Academy is a four-week cohort-based course and he basically helps people who want to start on YouTube, create their YouTube channel, and then create a process around that so that they can consistently create content. I think one of the things they do incredibly well is the pricing tier. At their lowest, it's $2,000. And this just gives you access to the live lessons. And then it goes up. So $3,000, you get live lessons plus the community. And at $6,000, it's lessons, community, and calls with Ali and his team. So I think the segmenting in this way has allowed him to just extract so much more revenue than he would have been able to do had he had it all just priced like $3,000. This is a framework I called like pricing against the demand curve. So this comes out of the gaming world where you have minnows, dolphins, and I think whales. I think most games make the majority of the revenue from whales. So these are people that are willing to spend a lot of money on upgrading their character, buying the different skins, and they're just playing constantly. So the idea is like you're kind of pricing against everyone's demand curve. So I think what Ali Abdal's done very well is whatever you're willing to pay, he has something for you. So he's not leaving any kind of money on the table. So that's kind of like the concept around pricing against the demand curve. If you look at last year though, the biggest increase came from part-time YouTube Academy. I think it's good because they could funnel a lot of their energy into that. It's good because he made a couple million dollars. I think it's bad if it's forced. So I think if they look at 2023 and they're like, okay, last year we made 5 million. This year we're going to make 7 million. Let's make 10 million next year. And they just keep trying to force part-time YouTuber Academy to grow. I think that's where it could kind of backfire. If you really want to grow that, I think you either add more students to the number of courts that you're doing, or you do courts all the time. And they're both going to really dilute his content because he's going to be so focused on trying to promote it. And that's the type of content that people don't really want to watch or consume. It's kind of like, I've already heard you plug it. I don't want to sign up. And if you're going to constantly do it, I'm going to unsubscribe. I think one of the things that Part-Time YouTuber Academy kind of struggles with is the type of people that take this course. For them, it's like a nice have. It's they want to become YouTubers, but maybe some people have started, other people haven't. And I think it goes back to the framework that people in tech think about or VCs think about when they're funding companies. So vitamins versus painkillers. Vitamins are things that are nice to have and they have some additional benefits, but it's not very clear to see. On the other hand, you have painkillers. 
where you have this immediate problem, it's a pain point, it's staring you right in the face and you'll pay anything or do anything to get rid of it. And I think one thing that Ali Abdal could do is perhaps transition away from being this nice to have, I want to create a YouTube channel, to solving a problem that essentially becomes a painkiller and helps him sell that a lot easier. Yeah, I think what Ali Abdal should do to grow grow this chunk of the pie is to launch different cohort-based courses across each one of the tiers of a YouTuber lifecycle and charge more as it, as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Because someone that has a million subscribers that's making a couple million dollars a year will pay five to 10 grand in order to learn how to grow that. And it might be a smaller cohort, but it's going to be extremely valuable. I could see him going from, what was it, two and a half million to $10 million a year just doing these four things. Yeah, I totally agree. I think he could have three tiers, right? Tier one is the Vitamin, part-time YouTuber academy. Tier two is operationalizing production. So you're graduating from one person to like maybe a small team. Everything is breaking. You're trying to make everything smoother. You're trying to work less than 80 hours per week. And so you're like, okay, it's time to level up. And then tier three is doing exactly what Ali Abdal did this past year. This past year, he creates, he had this huge audience, then he paired it with this cash flow generating machine. And that's what tier three is. It's like, okay, yeah. have subscriber base, turn it into lots of money. I think that's a great idea. Think about the life cycle of a YouTuber. Let's say there's the zero, one phase, one to 10, 10, 100, 100 to whatever, a thousand. And you could probably just pair that with the number of subscribers that they have. So the part-time YouTuber Academy is really targeted people in that zero to like thousand, zero to 10,000 subscribers phase. Don't really know what I want to do. Don't know how to film. Don't know how to edit. We're going to teach you how to do this part-time. Let's say out of a hundred students enroll, 10 of them actually get to 10,000 subscribers. At that point, it's like, okay, you have something that's working. Let's really figure out how to get into a cadence and operationalize this. So let's figure out how to edit. Let's figure out how to generate more content. Let's figure out how to grow your channel and get it to the next phase, which is 100,000 subscribers. When you're 100,000 subscribers, you're in a place where you can actually make serious money to then turn into full-time YouTuber Academy. So let's say at that tier, it's the full-time YouTuber Academy. This is how to go full-time. Massive painkiller because it's teaching someone how to make money and pursue their dreams. Let's say then the graduate level school is a million subscribers. And this is where we can figure out how you can launch businesses into a personal holding company for yourself, et cetera, et cetera. What I wouldn't do which I saw him put in his newsletter, I wouldn't try to sell this into corporations. And the biggest reason is because the, the major, the main customer for this product are people that want to pursue it as a full-time job. So you can kind of see that being with the company and he's like, hey, we're going to teach people how to become YouTubers. You can see there's a conflict of interest because he's teaching people how to pursue that as a full-time gig. Yeah, if he wanted to go after companies, he would have to create an entirely new core based course that takes time and he has to test out what works and what doesn't. And here he has something working, double down on it, expand on it, and kind of follow that life cycle of a YouTuber. I think one other thing he could do that I think is interesting is creating, I think they're called entrepreneurial operating systems, EOSs for short. And essentially what I would do is create a checklist of like, if you're from, going from 10,000 to 100,000, like here are the steps that you should go through. Like you can hire an executive assistant to help out a bit. You can hire a part-time editor from, from Fiverr to do Y. And here's exactly the step-by-step -step playbook that you need to do that. 
And then like from 10,000 to 100,000 and then 100,000 to a million. And it's like, okay, here's how you navigate your first sponsorship deal. And once you get to this amount, here are the other types of sponsorships you should be thinking about. And do that for every stage. And he could sell this as like a $20,000, just like checklist. It's completely asynchronous. It'll be a pain in the ass to make initially, but I do think he can like build once and then sell it twice. And this is something he can just plug here and there and will passively generate tens of thousands of dollars for him without him doing any work. No, I, th I think that's a great idea. That falls into kind of making money while you're sleeping. So that's why I lo love digital products. I think he could either sell them or actually he should do both. He should sell them as one off for people that don't want to take the course and he should throw it as like a free resource into the courses at each one of those stages. Do you want to talk about books? I think he should focus all of his energy around this book. I think he's doing it wrong. I think he's doing the old school novelist. Like you go in the woods, you write, you carve out three to four hours every morning, you drink your coffee and you just write, and then you create a masterpiece and then you see if people like it. I think for someone that grew up and build an audience on YouTube, it's, it's kind of mind boggling to me that he's not doing the James Clear, Mark Manson, Ryan Holiday model, where they're kind of testing out concepts in public, whether it's articles writing or tweets or YouTube, seeing what resonates with people, doubling down on that. And then pretty soon you have a book. And most of the authors that follow that formula that have an audience have written bestsellers that have sold a lot of copies that have made hundreds of millions of dollars. I worry that he writes the wrong thing that nobody really cares about. And that's the, the challenge with like writing in isolation versus writing in public. Which reminds me of Mark Manson when he got his book deal. I read that he didn't really know what to write about. And I think his agent said, well, why don't you go look at what your most popular blog post was and just write about that. And that became the book that he wrote. But what, what could go well, right, with this book? Let's say he does write super novel idea around productivity or health or whatever he's doing, he could sell like one, five, 10 million copies. And I think that would be crazy. Like it would be in every single airport, every single bookstore. It would be number one on the New York Times. It would be number one on Amazon. I think he would be in everyone's mind for 10, 20, 30 hours as they're reading the book. He have a huge impact in the world where he's changing everyone's perspective of how certain things are done. And he can make a lot of money. It's like, he can make tens, hundreds, I guess the publisher make hundreds of millions of dollars selling this book and he could just keep writing books. Do you know how much book authors make? So Ryan Holiday recently went on the My First Million podcast and he was talking about the economics of book publishing. And he basically said that most authors, like even at his caliber, earn between two, two to $3 per book. It varies based on like whether it's hardcover, paperback or an ebook. But roughly it nets out to two to $3 per book. And so Mark Manson, who we were talking about, his book, The Cecil Art of Not Giving a Fuck, which basically I think every single person on earth has basically seen this, the cover of this book. He has sold 10 to 15 million copies of that book alone. And so he's made between 30 to $45 million from the same which is incredible. And Ryan Holiday was saying that he has sold, I think, 5 million books in total. So he has made between 10 and $15 million just from being an author. I feel like this should be Ollie's playbook, right? Keep creating content, but use content as an avenue to test out ideas or concepts within a book. Write the first book and get it published and make it, it turn into a national bestseller by writing in public. Second or third book, go self-publishing. 
So rather than getting two or $3 a book, you clip 80% of it. You use your cohort-based courses to leverage that cash flow to pay for like the content production and the other ideas that you want to do. And you kind of work on your own terms. And I feel like that little intersection is a really good area to kind of double down on over the next few years. What I wouldn't do is like launch productivity products, whether it's digital or physical, because one, the entire space is so saturated, so competitive. So a great example of that is the stationary brand. I bought the, the, the products and I buy a lot of stationary just because I like the physical aspect of writing down my to-dos and journaling, et cetera. It was just not, a, it, was, it was like an interesting concept. It was just kind of like a me too product. The paper quality was good, not great. It, it just had like all these, you could tell like, if you wanted to change something, you would have to go back and reprint things. It's like, and it just didn't sell well. So just to back up, Ali Abdullah launched a stationary brand called, I think, Essentially, which is like a play on his name and like essentials. And I think he sold like notebooks, pens, and like a daily journal sort of thing. In one of his videos or in his newsletter, I think he said it didn't sell that well. I've been racking my brain as to why it didn't sell well. I think I have a good answer, which is yeah. probably not the answer people want to hear. I think it would do well if it had these two things. So the first one is it was a priority and focus. So since it was launched, it was always a side project that was like five, 10% of their time. So it was never a huge focus. It felt like it was a passion project. Second thing is it needs to be a priority and focus and it needs to be aligned with the strengths of the, the creator and the team. So it's very obvious that like they didn't have any experience making physical products. That's a whole other can of worms. I guarantee you as soon as they got into it, they're like, this sucks. Like we have to deal with paper printing, shipping, refunds, taxes, shipping worldwide. I guarantee you people that are working on this don't want to work on it. They want to create content. They want, they want to help with the book. They want to help with the, the, the school that they created. And so I think it was probably those two things that needed to happen. It was, it was actually a priority and in line with the strength. So if you actually think about the part-time YouTube Academy, it is a priority, right? So there's, there's a staff and team. You can tell Ollie and the team super passionate about education and helping people. That's aligned with their strengths as a content creator. So I think any YouTuber can make any idea work. It just needs to be a priority and aligned with their strengths or the, the team strengths of what they actually want to do. So I, th I think that's probably why it didn't work. I totally agree with this, right? Because it's like, why start something that has so much overheads, like so much um, operational complexity, such as a stationary brand, a physical product, when there are people there that have done it many times over? And you can just partner with them. Even better, if I was Ali, I think what I would have done is go to my favorite stationery store. Like who sells my favorite pen? Who sells my favorite notebook? And can we do a partnership between me and them? And then we'll do a revenue share. And the great thing about this is if it goes wrong or if it doesn't sell well, that's okay. I don't have to deal with setting up and then shutting down a warehouse. And I don't have to deal with a 3PL. I don't have to deal with fulfillment. And I think one person that has done a variation of this pretty well is Mr. Beast with Beast Burgers. And the way that he went about it was like, I'm not going to set up my own restaurants, although he has one physical one now. He went to existing fast food places and said, hey, I'm just going to launch this burger brand. You'll create the food. You'll work with the delivery drivers. And that will be it. We'll just send you all the customers to your store. And that's what he did. So he didn't have to deal with hiring anyone. He didn't have to deal with food and safety any of that, he just partnered with people that know that inside out. 
And he said he made $100 million from Beast Burgers since it launched. There's a framework around building versus partnering. If it's a party and you don't have the experience or the knowledge inside of the team, then you definitely partner. You don't build that from scratch because there's so many like, I imagine like a new company, new ideas, like there's a huge field and there's just mines everywhere. And if you take the wrong step on a mine, you're going to like blow up. Partnering allows you to work with someone that says, that mine, don't hit that one. Let's walk this way. Don't do that. Let's do that. And just allows you to get something out the door faster, but it also allows you to back out of something if it just doesn't work. Right. So rather than like them investing all their time, energy, and money into like launching stationary brand, they could just partner with hundreds of brands. I would love to partner with them that will handle the building of it, the distribution of it, the refunds, the shipping, and allowed him to just focus on a concept and they would have brought it to life which also shows you the power of having an audience. So the reason I'm excited about creators building an audience is one of the hardest things about building a company is hiring and marketing and raising capital. So let's say you can raise capital, you hire a team. Majority of the money that companies raise goes to sales and marketing. And if you have an audience and you can automatically go from zero to a hundred million in whatever, two, two or less years, that's amazing. That just shows you the power of having an audience that trusts you, that's willing to go out and pull off their wallet and, and spend money on the thing that you're that you're offering them. I do think there are pitfalls as we've seen with that though, right? It's like now that I've become a creator, I'm like, oh shit, I can sell things to people. And so I'm going to go and sell something. But I think everyone just follows the same playbook that we call the creator playbook. It's like, okay, when I have a big enough audience, I do AdSense. Then I do sponsorships or brand partnerships. Then I do merch. Everyone loves dropping merch. And then I do some course of some sort. And it's like, okay, that playbook has been run many times. I think the great thing that Ali did was he stepped outside of it. He was like, okay, people just do a Skillshare course or some asynchronous course. I'm going to do a live one and charge way more than people think is reasonable. And that's how he broke out of that and made a lot of money through Part-Time YouTuber Academy. There are so many other ways or better ways to make money that are more scalable or have higher margins than doing the creative playbook. I like the book that Jake Paul is doing. Logan Paul's younger brother. They're both boxing, build a huge audience on YouTube. And Jake Paul's like, hey, I'm going to launch something digital. So he partnered, I think, with a team and they launched an online gaming website that I think is their positioning is legal, which is pretty interesting, right? So I think they're, they treat him as a co-founder. I don't know what his equity stake is, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's pretty high. And he handles marketing, distribution, and content, right? So what Jake Paul did is he created an entirely new YouTube channel where they have a weekly show, a podcast, a video podcast, and just constant content to market the brand, to build an audience, et cetera. So he's taking what he's really good at. He added value and he partnered with a team that's launching a new business and then he became a co-founder. So I think that goes into like the build versus partner. Like, so what's Jake Paul really good at? He's really good at content and building audience and being part of culture. What he's, what is he not good at? He's not good at building a business. He has no experience there, nor does it seem like he really has that interest. So let's go find the best entrepreneurs in a space doing something I'm interested in. Let's, let's partner with them. I'll bring my value. You bring yours and together like one plus one equals three. And I like that model a lot versus let's build internally a merch drop. It's like, dude, like. Who cares? Like what, what's the most you can make a couple million dollars where let's say for Jake Paul, the, let's say this turns a billion dollar company and he owns 25% of that. Like 
that's 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 pretty substantial compared to like making whatever you make off a t-shirt how do you go about hiring a ceo if i were a youtuber i would really play up that we have distribution and marketing taken care of so all you have to do is build a great product and build a great team run the ops on the day-to-day so that that would be my big sell it's like hey like half the half the battle is already taken care of you can do what you're good at i'll do what i'm good at i meant practically i want to go hire a ceo i'm an influencer with a million subscribers i don't know the first thing about hiring a ceo or even a way to find one how do i make that happen there's a push versus pull approach so the push would be the pull would be hey i create a lot of content i could just kind of what mr beast did he just sent out a tweet create a short youtube video put up a job board and had like whatever thousands of people apply that works for like like junior to mid to senior roles like that can that works really well the more senior you get you got to really like go after them so i would i would compile a list of the the companies that i that i admire and then i would write down the leadership team of everyone that works at those companies and i would break those up into two tiers like who is the current leader and who's the up and comer i like to go after both, I really like the up and comer because they have a ceiling, right? So if you're the the number two to the number one, like you hit your ceiling and you want that number one role. So I like working with the number two because they're hungry, they're younger, they have a lot to prove. They might not have like that huge experience, but they want an opportunity. I would also make sure the team has people that have a lot of experience because you want a little bit of both. But that that's what I would do. I would map out the companies. I'd figure out who works where. I would literally find their email. I would DM them on Instagram or Twitter. I would just hound them. I would find warm intros. You kind of got to hustle and convince them to kind of work with you. Yeah. One approach that Andrew Wilkinson, the founder of Tiny, which buys businesses, it's kind of like a mini Berkshire Hathaway. His, and he has hired multiple CEOs. The way that he goes about doing this is he finds an exec or an up-and-comer from an adjacent business. So he looks at the business that he has, finds a similar business that is at least double the size, and then he finds someone that's helped scale that. And so he goes, poaches this person, and they just repeat the playbook that they have already done over the past three or four years. And that's how he does it. You have to do that, and you have to make sure you align all the incentives. So their comp package, I like paying very high salaries with also very high equity. From a salary standpoint, like let's say $100 is like the max someone can make. I like to go a little below that, let's say like 90 or 80, because I want to weed out people that just want to make cash. And then I go really high in equity. So let's say it's like 1%, I might go 2%, because I really want to incentivize someone for the long term to build something that has lasting value. And so that's where like incentive alignment really, really matters. Because once you get the right person, you have to make sure that they're incentivized to make the right decisions, because you're not going to be involved in the day-to-day and like micromanage them because these if you got the CEO of like right games you're not gonna like micromanage them. i mean that's like that's that's not gonna work i think that's a wrap for this unless yeah. there's anything else i would say i think ali abdal is gonna be very very successful but it's gonna require him to focus and double down on what's working and kind of delete everything that's not working i i would definitely shed the stationary brand i would write the book in public i would expand to these new courses now create keep creating content and keep doing what he's doing And I could see this growing and breaking 10 million over the next two to three years easily.